Okay, good evening. Good to see each of you. Hope that you're having a good week. And uh, let's bow together for a word of prayer. Then we'll sing an opening song and then uh, get into Matthew chapter 5 this evening. So please let's bow together for prayer. Lord, we're so grateful for the word of God, the opportunity that we have tonight to open our Bibles. And I pray that as we dig into the scriptures, the Holy Spirit would take the word and impress it upon our hearts as we think about the words of our Savior, that, that these truths would settle in our hearts so that it would shape the way that we relate to one another. And I pray that you will give me clarity of thought as I present these truths. And then as we spend time together in prayer and we lift up uh, great burdens, needs that are all around the world, within our church body, uh, friends and family that we know, I pray that uh, our hearts would be knit together and that we would see you actively at work in each of these situations. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. 411 is where we will uh, be tonight for our song. 411, the solid rock. And we'll sing the first, the second, and the fourth verses together, please. 411. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ's solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. When he shall come with trumpet sound, Oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, all lest you stand before the throne. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand. Great singing. Okay, well, we are in the Sermon on the Mount, and we're working our way verse by verse through this portion of Scripture. So let's all turn together to Matthew 5, and we're looking at verses 38 through 42. And my goal tonight is that we'll complete this section of the sermon, but again, I rarely hit my goal on Wednesday nights because um, there's a lot to cover, and I don't want to just blitz through it, but I'd like us to actually really try to digest what is here. And the statement that's in front of us is a very, very difficult statement in the Sermon on the Mount. There are a lot of difficult statements in the Sermon on the Mount. And this is one of the the most challenging. And so I'm going to read it again, summarize it, remind you of what we talked about generally last week. And then we're going to keep working our way through, um, hopefully understanding what this text is teaching. And then how we're supposed to apply it. So Matthew 5.38 says this. You have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. Whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. Now, we talked about this last week, and we emphasized the fact that these statements appear to be made with either no qualification or all, or with very, very little qualification. But we did mention last week that in order to properly understand this passage, you have to look at it in the context. This is a portion of a song, or of a, of a sermon that Jesus is preaching. There is something that he has already emphasized to this point in the sermon. And what he's doing is he's just continuing to build on what he's already presented. 
And then the second thing that we mentioned is that we have to go back into the Old Testament and understand what the Old Testament was teaching and the laws that are being discussed here. And we have to think about the way that these laws are being abused at the time that they were given and at the time that Jesus is addressing the issue. One of the ways that sometimes the laws were being abused was by the way that they were being taught in the synagogues, by the way that the the rabbis, the Pharisees, the religious leaders were trying to apply these laws. And so Jesus is directly confronting those misuses and those abuses of the law. And then if we really want to understand the application side, once we've looked at it in context, we've gone to the Old Testament and we've seen kind of the Old Testament presentation of these things, we go into where in the epistles these truths are being expounded. And we're going to do that hopefully tonight and if not for sure Lord willing, next week. How do people like the Apostle Paul or how do James or how how does Peter take the truth that Jesus is teaching and how does he apply it to the people in those situations? Because obviously the way that Peter is applying it or Paul is applying it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is going to be a perfect application of what Jesus is saying. The Holy Spirit's not going to speak two different ways in the Bible in conflict. So it's important for us to understand that that whole piece together. And that's kind of what we were dealing with last week. So a summary statement is this. The character of a growing disciple of Christ should motivate him to defer opportunities for vengeance, willingly accept the consequences for his actions, even when they are excessive, and cause him to humbly bear along with those who cause him frustration. Now, there's a reason that I mention in there, defer vengeance, accept consequence, even if it appears to be excessive, bear long with people who frustrate us. It's because those are all things that Jesus is addressing in these verses. And what Jesus is talking about is our civic duty. How are we supposed to relate to other people? It could be in our homes, it could be in the church context, but really he's thinking more in terms of, in the community, how we relate to people who would be our neighbors. So last week we talked about the context and considering the whole of scripture on the issue in front of us. What I'd like to do this evening is I'd like us to go now to the Old Testament background so that we can understand the kinds of laws that were given in the Old Testament and to understand that these are the things that are being applied by the religious leaders, the the rabbis in the synagogues, and these are the things that Jesus is confronting. So, first of all, I want you to turn with me to Exodus 21, and we're going to read verses 22 through 27. The first of these passages that we're going to look at is dealing with the issue of damages when injuries occur. So, is it okay or is it allowable under the law if you were to harm somebody physically that there would, be ha- there would have to be some kind of damage paid on your part. And the answer is, yes, indeed, it was allowable. And we have to understand that in the time that these things were written, there was really a tit-for-tat kind of mindset. And by the way, there's a tit-for-tat mindset today, too, I would, I would have to say. I mean, you think about situations in a work environment. <clears throat> One person does something to another person, they get upset, and what do they do? They retaliate, all right? And the way that they retaliate is they say, well, this happened to me, so I have the right to do this back. And if somebody has to work through the issue, what they're probably going to say is, you didn't have to do that. I think you shouldn't have done that, but I can understand why you felt that way. Isn't that the kind of conversation a lot of times you would have? Sometimes we even have this with our children. One child does this, the other child responds this way, say, I can understand why you feel like that's allowable, but in our house you can't do that, and we have to work our way through it. Well, in the legal system, God established laws that really allowed for there to be some level of damage paid back, but limitation to those damages. Now, that was not to say that they were required by law to do what was allowable, okay? If he says eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, he's not saying, if somebody damages your eye, you have to go and pluck out their eye. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you can't go beyond the eye. That's that's essentially what's going on. And so here's what it says in Exodus 21. And this is an interesting example because it doesn't just tell us a little bit about 
when a person has been injured, but it, it, it also tells us a little bit about how God views life in the womb. All right, this is an interesting text. It says, if men strive and hurt a woman with childs so that her fruit depart from her. Now, what do you think that means? What that means is that she actually goes into labor prematurely because of an injury that she has experienced. Now, these two guys are fighting each other. They're not fighting her, but they accidentally, incidentally, they harm her in the process, okay? So this is not like they're saying, oh, I want to hurt this woman, and I want to hurt the child that this woman is carrying. That's not what's going on. They're fighting with each other. They're not thinking clearly, and she is hurt. Here's what it says. He shall surely be punished. According to the woman's husband, he will lay upon him. He shall pay as the judge determines. And if any mischief follow, then shall you give life for life. Oh, did you catch that? Like, if two guys are fighting and a woman miscarries and she loses the child, that was viewed as a capital offense in Israel. I think that tells you something about how God views life in the womb. All right? Obviously, we have a human, a person who is to be protected by the law. He then goes on to say this, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burning for burning, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. If a man smite the eye of his servant or the eye of his maid that it perish, you shall let him go free for his eye's sake. And by the way, in these situations, if someone was a servant to another person in Israel, the reason for that is because they owed a debt. So it's almost like saying this, if somebody owes you a debt and you are working for, or they are working for you because they're paying off their debt, okay? And, and that's a totally, you know, anybody have a credit card? <laughs> Do you, are you expected to pay back your credit card? The answer is yes, you are, okay? Well, some people are not, but anyway, you're expected to pay it back. So this guy owes you money. He's working off his debt. And because of your harshness or because of your negligence, that person gets hurt in your house working for you to pay off their debt. Guess what happens? Debt is released. They get to go. That's the payment, okay? They're going to have to live with an injury. In other words, they're saying, you have to pay damages. That's, that's the idea. He says, if his maidservant tooth, he shall also let him go for his tooth's sake. So, what, what you see established in this law is something that's very simple. You hurt somebody... There's some expectation that there's a damage that needs to be paid. Okay? And even in our legal system, we have this kind of a situation. A second one that I want to mention here is Leviticus 24. Now this one is interesting because it's not a person harming a person, but it's a person who's being negligent with something that belongs to them, an animal, and because of their negligence, a person is harmed and they're held liable for what's going on. I, I would just say it like this. We probably would take care of a lot of problems in our society if we'd hold parents responsible for the things that their kids are doing when they're little. Baltimore City, hello? Just saying that there, okay? Or if somebody is negligent, and because of their negligence, a person is harmed, they need to address that issue. So here's what it says, Leviticus 24, 18. He that killeth a beast... Shall make it good, beast for beast. If a man cause a blemish in his neighbor, he hath done so, shall it be done unto him. Breach for breach, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he hath caused a blemish in a man, so shall it be done again to him. Another example is if you have an animal, and that animal is known to be dangerous, and then it goes and it gores a person, you're held liable. Did you catch that? So we could go to a lot of other examples, but the point of these verses is to say this. In the Mosaic law, if somebody harmed another person through negligence, that was the, they were trying to do it, whatever the situation, there were damages that could be expected to be paid. Second, damages where people had been falsely accused. Now, this is an interesting one. Very fascinating. We could use the word frivolous lawsuit, right? That would be two words, frivolous lawsuit. All right, if somebody brings a lawsuit... And it's frivolous, and it's proven to be frivolous. In the Jewish system, guess what? They had to 
bring on themselves the penalty that would have been incurred on the other person. That would take care of a lot of problems here too. All right, Deuteronomy 19, verse 16. Listen to what it says. If a false witness rise up against any man to testify against him, that which is wrong, then both the men between whom the controversy is shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges, which shall be in those days. And the judges shall make diligent inquisition. And behold, if the witness be a false witness. Now, how did they do that? How did they make a diligent inquisition, inquiry? They're trying to figure this out. It's called cross-examination, okay? You say this has happened. Well, I, I'm going to have to see if there's any evidence for this. And if you can determine that, in fact, this person is lying, here's what's supposed to happen. If the witness be a false witness and hath testified falsely against his brother, then shall ye do unto him as he hath thought to have done unto his brother. So shalt thou put away the evil from among you, and those which remain shall hear and fear, and shall henceforth commit no more any such evil among you. Thine eyes shall not pity, but life shall go for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. And by the way, there are other examples in the Old Testament of this principle. So what you can see is damages need to be paid. Uh, if somebody's being uh, dishonest, there would be consequences for that. There's a third uh, issue that we'll mention here, and that is security to motivate people to repay their debts. Now, what we would, what we would talk about this is, let's say that somebody is, is, is getting a loan and they have to put some kind of uh, thing aside as a security for that. That's the idea. Well, when you have a society where people don't really own a lot of stuff, I ask the question, well, what do you put as a security? Ever thought about that? Uh, your cloak. <laughs> the shirt on your back, literally. Okay, I'll pay it back. You hold on to my cloak until I pay it back. And so I'm sitting there, I'm going to pay this back because I need my cloak back. All right, that's the idea. So this is why he talks about this issue of a cloak. Listen to what it says in Exodus 22, 26. If thou at all take thy neighbor's raiment to pledge, thou shalt deliver it unto him by that the sun go down. For that is his covering only. It is his raiment for his skin, wherein shall he sleep. It shall come to pass that when he crieth unto me, I will hear, for I am gracious. So this is an interesting law because what it does is it shows you that if a person has nothing and they owe a debt, they can put aside for security their cloak. And by the way, it could be an outer garment. I mean, they, they wore multiple layers, okay? But if this person was in a situation where they go to sleep at night and they've got nothing to keep them warm, have some pity on them, give them their cloak back so they can sleep within a night, and then they need to give it back to you. Why? Because they have to pay off their debt. It sounds like an interesting system, does it not? The idea is that there has to be some legal repercussion. The last thing I'm going to mention is the issue of generosity. And we, we, we were able to listen to uh, the, the last chapter, Pastor Josh dealt with the last chapter in Ruth, and we've been in Ruth for a couple of weeks on Sunday nights. And really a, a central portion of that story of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz is the idea of gleaning in fields. And so here is Naomi. She is a widow. She's destitute. She doesn't have a piece of property that she can co and she can farm. And she doesn't have people that can go work for her on the farm. She's a very vulnerable person. And here's Ruth who has come from Moab and she's living with her, uh, her mother-in-law. But she is a widow. They're both widows. They have no one to look out for them, no one to take care of them. And the question is, well, what does a person in that society do to survive? I mean, how do they go get a job? Where do they go work? Where do they live? How do they do? This is an agrarian society. Well, God really cares about people in such situations. He cares about those who are truly destitute. And God provided a system that is so wise. Obviously, it's God's wisdom. But you know what it does? It gives people who have nothing an opportunity to survive. But it doesn't just give them a free handout. They literally have to go and work in a field so that they can feed themselves. And the people that have portions of land, 
they are supposed to leave small portions of that land unharvested so that people who have nothing and are destitute and are in the situation like a Ruth and a Naomi can go and they can glean in the fields. What an amazing system, isn't it? So he's not encouraging people to be slouches and lazy and just sit around and say, give me something and they become entitled. No, that's not at all what's going on. They are working. There is dignity in what they're doing. And it keeps those who have plenty from becoming very cold and callous towards these people who are very destitute. Keeps people from being greedy. It encourages a generosity to the poor. And so notice what it says in Deuteronomy 15.11. It says the poor shall never cease out of the land. Now, don't miss this. There is no way in the world you will ever eliminate poverty. (laughs) It's impossible, okay? So anybody that believes that you can eliminate poverty is believing something that's not true. Okay, it's just not true. In fact, there are lots and lots of different reasons that people are in poverty. Some reasons are things that they 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 have they had no ability to control. For instance, was Ruth poor because she made bad decisions? No, she she wasn't. I mean, she was poor because she chose to stay faithful to Naomi, her mother-in-law, and go and live with this woman who had nothing to offer to her. You could almost say that the reason that Ruth was poor is because she was faithful to her mother-in-law. Now, you could make an argument that some of Naomi's decisions contributed to her destitution, but, but the reality is she was just being submissive to her husband. She went and lived in Moab. She had no control over her husband dying, her boys dying, and all those things. The reason that these two ladies were in a destitute position is because life's sometimes very hard. And this is one of the reasons for poverty sometimes. There are other reasons for poverty as well. What does the Bible say in Proverbs? In fact, I, 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 I kind of hammer this a lot with my kids. We're doing our devotions, all right? And we talk a lot about the fact that a person who will not work will become poor and destitute. A person who's not industrious, a person who doesn't have a good work ethic, that person is going to become destitute because guess what? They do not have a way of providing for themselves. A person who becomes addicted to some kind of substance, guess what's going to happen? That addiction is going to be something that just saps them of all their energy, saps them of all their motivation, takes all of their resources, and eventually, guess what? They have nothing. A very simple fact, uh, we could talk about this when we look at statistics. People that get married stay faithful to their spouse and have their family, those children growing up at home are way more likely statistically to be financially, when I use the word prosperous, I don't mean that they're going to be like affluent people, but I mean they're going to be able to take care of their families. They're going to live stable lives. And people that choose to like completely ignore the system and I'm just going to throw caution to the wind and do whatever I want, guess what? It creates a lot of problems. Now, the reason I say this is to say that this issue of poverty is pretty complicated. And God's solution is outstanding. It is so wise. It is so good. He says there's nothing you can do to eliminate poverty from society because of all the potential factors that come into this. But here is how you take care of people who are needy. He says, thou shalt open thy hand wide unto thy brother, to thy poor, and to thy needy in the land. Leviticus 23, 22. When ye reap the harvest of your land, thou shalt not make clean riddance of the corners of the field. When thou reapest, neither shalt thou gather any gleaning of the harvest. Thou shalt leave them unto the poor and to the stranger. I am the Lord your God. And by the way, we could go to lots and lots of scriptures that actually expound this even more. Where, where he talks so, so clearly about his care and his love for people who are in very difficult situations. One of the ways that God takes care of those who are destitute is that people whom he has blessed, instead of them being greedy and self-centered, they're willing to help those in in an appropriate way. And obviously, when we talk about this issue of people gleaning in the fields, that was one of the most significant appropriate ways. Now, I would like to take these passages that I think are really foundational to what Jesus is saying, and I'm going to kind of put it this way. This is what the main point of these passages are. Number one, it's to limit 
evil in society. Now, is every single sin illegal in this country? No, okay? Was every single sin illegal in Israel? No, it, it wasn't, okay? Now, does that mean that God didn't care about those sins? The answer is, well, no, he did care about those sins. And one day we're going to stand before him, and if we've rejected the gospel, we're going to stand before God for every sin, every idle word, every thought, everything that we've done. We're going to face the full weight of God's wrath against our sin. But there are certain sins that are not only sin, but they are very disruptive society in such a way that God says, I have to establish government and laws to limit the extent of those kinds of evils because they destroy society. And so what these laws are is God's way of limiting evil. He says there have to be consequences for damages that are done. So if somebody can walk out into this parking lot with a baseball bat and smash every single window and sit there and there's no consequence, guess what happens? This guy's got some friend who's going to say, well, I'm going to go to another church next Sunday and I'm going to smash every window there. And he's like, hey, you'll never believe this. I went to that church, smashed all their windows, nobody did anything. And he's like, yeah, I went to that one. And they're just going to wreak havoc on a community until somebody says, hold on, there's some laws here. We need to have some, uh, some restraint. We need to actually enforce the law. And then what happens is somebody goes, don't you dare walk into that parking lot and smash a windshield because you're going to go to jail. You're going to have to pay for damages. There's going to be some real life consequences. And word gets around, hey, you better not do that. You better not be stealing hubcaps. You better not be smashing windshields. You better not be doing those things because there's real life consequences. That's why laws are there. To restrain evil. Secondly was to limit vengeance. There needed to be limitations on retribution. God knows that when someone has done wrong. In the heart of the person that's been wrong. Is a desire for that issue to be resolved. And by the way. The fact that we know that wrong needs to be resolved is not bad. Okay. That's a good thing, okay? Justice is not evil. I mean, justice does get distorted, it becomes evil. But the concept of justice, righteous justice is good. But what is God doing? He is limiting this tit-for-tat mindset. In a society where up to this time, if you had an issue with another person, you went to their family heads, they went to your family heads, and you resolved it, and that's how things were handled. In fact, in some parts of the world, this is still how things are done. When I was a missionary in Ghana, this probably seems totally you know, foreign to a lot of us here. But I remember that there was a, uh, a dispute between a man and a woman and they had a child together. Okay, they were not married. They had a child together. And I remember that I was called into this situation to help settle the dispute. And I was like, well, what do I have to say here? Okay. And so this is the way they resolved it. The guy got the most respected men in his family. Those would be like his uncles, his grandpa, all these people, okay? And they all discussed the issue. And then the woman, she got all these people in her family who would have been of the same status. And she presented her case to them. They presented, or he presented his case to his people. They all sat down and guess what? They resolved it amongst themselves and they told him this is what's going to happen. They told her this was going to happen. You say, that really happened? Yep, that's the way they used to do it in those days. That's the way they still do it today. If you didn't have a government, that's the way these issues would be resolved. And so Jesus, or excuse me, the, the law was written in a time when this would have been part of the thinking of the people. And so there needed to be a limitation of, of vengeance, not just the heads of families talking about it and saying, well, you took out his eye, so he gets to take out your eye. He says a judge needs to make a determination about what's appropriate. Thirdly, it was to limit demands for repayment for damages there is a threshold okay just because you're this angry doesn't mean that you need this level of retribution okay and you don't get to determine that a judge who is unbiased hopefully unbiased they're going to make the decision fourthly it was so that people would be generous to the needy 
when people have legitimate needs and we have the ability to meet the needs, we should do it in the very best way possible for that person. And so those are the intents of the laws that we see in these verses. And so if we're going to look at this passage, understanding this correctly, we would have to say that the Old Testament law said if someone injures another person, a judge has a responsibility to see that there is just compensation for those damages. It didn't say the person who's been wronged. It says a judge. Secondly, the authority to make those determinations was only in the hands of the judge because God delegated to them that authority. And I would have to say this. If a person holds an office in government where they are to make judgments that are going to be mediating out penalties or are choosing not to mediate penalties, they are highly answerable to God for the judgments that they make. You say, well, what if they don't think that they're answerable to God? Well, they're going to find out one day they were wrong, okay? It's that simple. And when a society understands that in that setting, I'm answerable to God, they're going to be very cautious about the way they make judgments. Do you know why our society is where it's at right now? Because we got too many people in power like that who don't believe they're answerable to God. They believe that the legal system is a tool to do what they want. And you know what's amazing? Jesus is addressing that very problem in his day. Thirdly, compensation needed to be proportionate with certain limitations. I think we understand that. Fourth, people should not use the legal system to protect themselves from appropriate accountability. So, you know, if I have a friend who happens to be a judge, they like me, I like them, we have this little deal behind the scenes, I can somehow, I can eliminate my responsibility, culpability, because of my relationship to this person. He says, that's not what the law's for. And so, we see that that's a part of this. People should not use the legal system to favor one person over another. Now, this is interesting. When we read the Old Testament law, he doesn't just say, don't favor rich people. He said, don't favor poor people or rich people. You know why he did that? Because it can go either way. <laughs> A person could choose to favor one group over another simply because of their family background, their experience in life, some agenda that they've had. And so he says, do not allow the legal system to favor one person over another. We talk about blind justice. Where do you think that concept came from? It's a biblical concept. People should not use the legal system to abuse others. And by the way, when we go to 1 Corinthians and he talks about people, Christians taking Christians to court and the church and all that stuff, that's what's going on. They're taking a person that they don't like and they drag them into the court so they can destroy them and they can use the system to get vengeance. And so all of these are things that are specifically being addressed to say, don't do those things. You say, well, on the other side, how would people have used this wrongly? Well, they would have leveled harsher penalties than what should have been allowed. They would have demanded compensation to the full extent of the law and beyond if they could. They would take laws outside of the legal context and seek to apply them interpersonally. And they would use the law to destroy or favor other people. So, this is the situation that Jesus is looking at when he addresses these laws. He understands what the Old Testament laws were given for. And he understands how they're being used in the time that he's living. And that's why he makes the statements that he does. The tendency is that people will look at situations, demand their rights, go as far as they can, do everything they can to try to eliminate their culpability in situations. But how are we supposed to respond? We need godly wisdom. And godly wisdom should shape every single aspect of how we relate to people. A biblical worldview should be the starting point. Biblical values should be the ultimate thing that guides what we do. An understanding of the basic principles that we find in these verses, in the scriptures, and how they relate to the situation that we are dealing with. Those things need to come into play. We need a heart that is filled with godly virtue. 
So the question is, how do we apply this? How would these qualities work themselves out in real life situations? Qualities like meekness, being merciful, being pure in heart, a peacemaker. These are the qualities that are talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. How would these things work themselves out when somebody's wronged me? How would they work themselves out when I'm in a legal dispute where I have done wrong? (laughs) When we have an association with someone who is malicious and they're insulting us. We have demands placed on us that we think are too burdensome. We do not think that they're fair. Anybody anybody, uh, done their taxes and looked at it and said, I don't think it's fair, I got to pay this much money money to the government? I thought that a couple times. (laughs) I should say more than a couple times. Every single time I pull together all my stuff and I see how much is paid, I'm like, man, if I could have taken that money that was given to the government... And I could use it for my kids. I mean, what a noble purpose, right? That's a lot of money. But the question is, how should we respond? We say, I think this, this law is too burdensome for me. What about when people come to us with needs? We have the ability to meet it. But we don't really want to get into that situation. Well, let's remember what this passage is saying. The first thing is, when you've done wrong, you need to pay the damages. Just even if the person you think is being a little bit unfair in how much they're demanding. That's really what he's saying in verses 38 and 39 when he says, You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that you resist not evil. It's like when the kids are playing baseball. I remember when I was a kid, we were playing baseball in my neighbor's backyard. And uh, one kid was pitching, one kid was hitting. He hit a nice line drive. It just happened to go through the... Uh, the back window of, um, of our friend's mother's kitchen. And it was, uh, she wasn't very happy about it. And she came out and she said, you know how much that thing's going to cost? And she demanded he pay the whole thing. And all of us were sitting there going, oh, I mean, he broke the window, but we're just kids. I mean, come on. Guess what? Maybe we should have all pitched in and paid for it together since we were contributing to the problem. But when he says, when the law demands that you need to pay because you have violated the law, well, then just do it. (laughs) The demand is being made because you're in the wrong. You feel the person's gone too far, but it's within the law's demands. Guess what? Pay it. I remember one time I was playing catch with a friend of mine. He's like, here, throw me the ball, throw me the ball. I threw him the ball. He missed it and it hit hit his mom's van. Put a big old dent right there in the side of the van. And I was like, here we go. Got to pay for this. You know what? My dad sat me down and he says, son, you're going to have to pay for that. And uh, it's going to cost you some cutting grass and a couple other things and stuff like that. And guess what? That's, that's what I needed to do. I didn't need to protest and say, well, dad, I'm just a kid. I'm just a teenager. I can't pay for this. No, I needed to pay for it. And that is the sense of what he's saying here. On the other side, he could also be saying, look, when somebody has harmed you, You do not have to demand for the absolute highest extent that the law gives. In other words, okay, your eye was damaged. Do you need that person to be blind too? He knocked your tooth out. Do you need to knock his out? And the answer is no, you really don't. You don't have to do that. So really what Jesus could be saying is one of two possibilities here. Either one, you don't need to demand the eye for the eye and the tooth for the tooth. Or two, if you're in the wrong, just pay it. Really, both are the idea. But a person who has the heart and the character of the disciple of Christ says, you know what? If I've done wrong, I will deal with it. If someone has harmed me, I'm going to be restrained in how I respond back. Second, do not insult those who insult you and be prepared to endure insult more than once. Verse 39 says, Whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, When we hear smite on the cheek, a lot of us are thinking, well, this is like a boxing match, okay? I'm standing here, I'm like, all right, what am I going to do? And the guy's like, bam, he hits you in the face. You're like, you mean I can't hit him back? What's going on here? Okay? That's not what he's talking about. He talks about smiting on the cheek. This is a common reference to the kinds of insults that would have happened in Jewish culture. Now, it was kind of interesting. We were uh, on on Sunday night, you know, talking about when uh, Boaz goes to the, the city gate, And he talks to this guy who was the one who was supposed to redeem Ruth. 
And he says, hey, there's a plot of land. Would you like to take the land? And he's like, oh, I sure would. And he's like, well, in the day that you do this, you get Ruth as well, the Moabite. And he's like, oh, I don't want that. He's like, give me a shoe. Give me a shoe. All right, there's your shoe. Smack. All right. And we go, what in the world is that all about? Well, in their culture, that was a way of saying, you know what? This guy, he refused to do what was his duty. And he has insulted this woman and this family. And he should bear shame. That's really the sense of what's going on here. I don't think he's talking about somebody who's physically assaulting another person. And, uh, you know, if somebody decides to try to rob you and they throw you on the ground, you just got to let them do whatever they're going to do. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about do not retaliate, bear long with people who insult you. And uh, I think we have learned in life a lot of times, and when I'm talking about the interpersonal situations, when somebody says something they shouldn't, this person decides to say the same thing back, this person decides to up it a little bit, and what does this person do? And this, it just gets worse and worse and worse. Until finally somebody says, okay, all right, hold on, we got to back off here. Jesus is saying, be willing to deal with insults. Thirdly, be willing to accept the consequences of your actions, even if they are excessive. Verse 40 says, If any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have the cloak also. You are found to be in the wrong in this situation. In the eyes of a court, you are giving something that is required to be given because you owe a debt. He's saying, listen, be willing to pay it. That's what he's doing. And so we need to learn that when we have done wrong, when we're in these kinds of situations, we need to be deferential. We should be restrained. These are the qualities that should characterize God's people. And then we have in verse 41, be willing to go beyond what is required. He says, whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Now, this is an interesting uh, uh, verse because it's talking about something that was common under Roman rule. In their system, the Romans could compel a person to do something with certain limitations. For instance, we know the story of when Jesus is carrying his cross up to Golgotha. He stumbles on the road. And as he stumbles on the road, they pull this man named Simon of Cyrene out of the crowd. And they said, you got to carry his cross. And he looked at the Roman soldier and said, I'm not carrying that man's cross. Is that what he did? No, he carried it. Why did he do that? Well, because he had no choice. He had to carry it. It was the law. And so if a Roman soldier came up to you and they said, hey, I need you to help me carry this. You can't say, oh, I'm not going to do that. You say, well, that's not fair. Where are their rights? Well, <laughs> they didn't live under a system where they had the kinds of bill of rights that we have today. I hate to say it, we may not have it too down the road. And so in that situation, Jesus says, you're required by law to carry it a mile. Why not help the God another mile? The law is not demanding it. Show him kindness. Do it for him. That's what he's saying. In other words, don't say, this is the limit, this is the law. When I get to step number whatever, I'm dropping the bag and I'm going to keep on going. And you're stuck. He said, hey, you probably need that a little bit more. Let me help you out a little longer. That's what he's saying. The law demands the first mile. Be willing to go beyond what is expected. And then lastly, be willing to show mercy indiscriminately. In verse 42, he says, Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn thou not away. Now, I think the focus of this is really twofold. One is, do not show partiality. So when he says, give to him that asketh thee, he's saying, don't be like, well, I'll give to you because of this situation, but I won't give to you here because I have some issue against you. But there's another side to this. He's not saying you've got to give him whatever he wants. Or you've got to give it to him the exact same way that he wants. For instance, let's say that you're sitting in a McDonald's. I had a situation like this one time. My brother and I, actually it was a Waffle House. A good old, you know, Southern greasy spoon kind of a place, all right? Sitting there at Waffle House and, and I'm getting ready to get my eggs and my burger and all that stuff, you know. And this, this, this fella comes out of the shadows and he sits down and says, hey, you know, I, I like a burger. Can you give me five bucks so I can go over there to uh, McDonald's and get a burger? I said, you're hungry. He said, yeah, I am. I said, well, sit down with us. I'll get you a burger. 
He said, well, you understand. I need $5 so I can go to McDonald's. I said, I don't think you understand. If you'd like to sit with us, I'll buy you a burger. If, uh, if you don't want to sit with us and you don't want you know, to eat a burger at this place, then I'm sorry, it's not available for you. Now, should I have given him $5 so he could go to, well, he probably wasn't going to go to McDonald's. <laughs> Just saying, all right, I'm going to guess. <laughs> Based on the rest of the conversation, he wasn't going to go to McDonald's. This verse isn't saying, if somebody says, give me this, you got to do it. Or if they say, you give it to me and here's the rules I demand, that you go, oh, God, I'm sorry. Let me, let me do it your way. I'm sorry. It's not what he's saying. What he's saying is when a person comes to you and they really have a need, and you say, I want to deal with this. But you know it's a need. And you know you can help them, and you know that you should help them. Set aside your rights. Do the right thing and be a help to them. That's what he's saying. Now, we know he's not just saying you give to them whatever they want because we have a lot of other passages that talk to us about certain parameters about how we show uh, generosity to people in situations. So that leads me to our final thought. I'm going to go a little long here, but I'm going to just, I'm going to nail this out because I think it'd be kind of weird to leave this at the end. How do we apply this? Romans chapter 12 is going to give us kind of blow by blow how you how you apply this. And I'm not going to spend an elaborate amount of time on this. I'm just going to hit the point so you can see how Paul's taking the things we just talked about and he's applying them. The first thing, have a genuine love for people, even the ones that cause you grief. And you know what? There's people that cause us grief. And some of us cause grief to people too. And sometimes we cause grief to the people that cause us grief. You know what I mean, all right? Especially when we, you know, live in close proximity. Under the same roof, same community, those kinds of things. He says, be kindly affectioned one to another. What's that? Love people. Love people. You mean even the ones that kind of sometimes rub us the wrong way? Yes. Yes, that's what he's saying. <laughs> like, I don't like that. Too bad, it's what he said. Be kindly affectioned one toward another. The second thing that he states is put others before yourself. He says, prefer one another. That means that if you're in a situation, rather than taking the biggest slice for yourself, because you're trying to lose weight, you let them take the biggest slice, right? No, that's actually not what he's saying. He's saying you consider their needs even before your own. Even before your own. Be deferential. Be willing to set aside your rights. Now, you're going to see by the end of this that there are some, also some caveats that he's going to make later on in here. But as a general rule, put others ahead of yourself. Three, keep a hopeful attitude when conflicts arise. What I mean by that is that in the back of your mind, say, I know it's not good now, but that doesn't mean it's always going to be that way. And I am hopeful, and I am working toward, and I am praying for, and I'm taking the steps to see this issue become resolved between us. He says rejoicing in hope. The idea is, I'm looking for it, I'm saying, this can be resolved. It doesn't appear that way at the moment, but it can be. Next, do not quit when things are tough. He says, be patient in tribulation. Now, I think that this is all in the same context. Love people, put them ahead of yourselves, anticipate and be hopeful of a future where things are resolved be patient when things are not going the best he says be generous distributing to the necessity of the saints that's going back to what we just talked about in matthew be willing to meet people where they are he says condescend to men of low estate if you have a conflict with someone else guess what the weaker person in maturity is not the one who takes the first step it will not happen okay you know who takes the first step? The one who says, you know what? I'll set my, 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 my rights down, my feelings down. I'm going to take a step. I'm going to swallow my pride. I'm going to say I was wrong. To the extent that I need to, I'm going to resolve this issue. You know who says that first? The stronger person. Always. Always. The weaker person won't do that. That doesn't mean that, I mean, your child might do that with you. <laughs> it means they're the one that's showing more maturity in the way they're handling the situation condescend to men of low estate. Yes, I know they're in the wrong, but
but you know what? I'm going to step down. I'm going to meet them where they are because I want to help them get through this issue. Don't be vengeful. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Oh, they said this. I'm going to say it back. Punch, counterpunch. And man, that counterpunch is going to be harder than that first punch. Or it's just going to be just at that right level. And they'll back down. No, they're probably, probably going to punch you back. <laughs> and it's just going to get worse. Defer vengeance. Do your best to resolve conflicts, if it be possible. This is an important statement. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Now, Paul is stating here that there are some situations you can't resolve. I don't know about you, it's sometimes hard to come to that conclusion in a situation, and sometimes we want to move there really fast, okay? But he is saying, listen, there are situations you can't resolve. You have to be willing to accept that. But as much as you are responsible, take those steps to resolve the issue. Let God deal with people when we have been wronged. He says, avenge not yourself, but rather give place to wrath. God is big enough and strong enough and wise enough to know when to deal with the issue the way it needs to be dealt with. Do good to people even when they've, done, when they've not done good to you. He says, be not overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. So what's the point? Well, the point is, we've got to be a people who quickly and completely take responsibility for actions. We don't look for loopholes to try to get around our responsibility. We don't return evil for evil. We bear along with difficult people. We're willing to set aside our rights if that's what it takes to properly address an issue. We're impartial and generous when presented with real needs. And I think that that is what the point of these verses is. What Jesus is saying is that's how the Christian is supposed to live. And so let's ask the Lord to help us to do that. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, thank you for the word. These are tough passages, and I pray that you'll help us to be men and women of real integrity, that we would have godly virtue and wisdom, and that as we deal with people in our, in our interpersonal relationships, as difficult as it may be at times, that we would take the truths of Scripture in this, these, these verses, and we would apply them, and we would learn to trust you in what we are doing. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.